The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. Today, we continue looking at Job's answer to Zophar. You may recall in chapter 12 that Job started out talking about God himself and explaining how great God is. And then in chapter 13, he began to defend himself. But in chapter 14, Job begins to ask some questions that are very important questions. Join us today as we look at this conclusion to Job's answer to Zophar, and we explore some important truths that were Job's help in time of need. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. Poor, weak, and He ransomed me from hell. 
we're going to be in the 14th chapter of the book of Job. And I'm going to do my very best not to do much reviewing <laughs> because um, it's a very tempting, I'll tell you from a preacher's standpoint, especially when you have a two-week gap between sermons in a series to go back and spend a lot of your time reviewing. Tonight, I just want to say about that that we're in the longest response thus far from Job to one of his friends. It's a three-chapter response. We're in the third chapter of that three-chapter response. And he was responding to Zophar, the Namathite, who was the harshest of his friends. We saw in chapter 12 and 13 how Job is kind of putting up a little defense of himself and, and in some ways right, many ways right, in some ways we see a little pride creeping in, but, uh, but in chapter 14, um, we're going we're gonna to find some questions asked by Job that are so relevant to us today. Now, let me just give you a little, a little caveat about how I'm trying to approach the book of Job, and I believe it's of the Lord, is it's easy to go to Job and pull verses out especially this 14th chapter, and I've done it, other preachers have done it, and I will continue to do it because these are some rich truths in this book. But I'm trying, as we go through the book of Job, to make sure we don't lose sight of the immediate context. And that's why we're kind of taking a verse-by-verse approach to it because we want to see what's really going on in the life of Job and how these verses that contain these rich truths applied to him who is... The man that we always go to about suffering, right? You know, I've said this from the beginning. This is a book about suffering, and it's the first book written in the Scriptures. It tells me maybe that the Lord had, some, had a desire for us to understand this sin-cursed world around us a little bit and to see where our hope would lie. So let's just look in the book of Job here. And it's very similar to the 4th and then the 6th and 7th and then the 10th chapters where Job has responded before. But here it seems like he's beginning to think about his own death and what may be after death and brings up some important questions. Notice in chapter 14 and verse 1 he says, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Now here in the 14th chapter, these first two verses, Job pretty much lays out the problem. He sets forth the proposition in response to all of the self-righteous approach that his friends have taken, all of the uh, miserable comfort that they have tried to give. He lays out the essential problem of life. And is this not the essential problem we have? Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Now, some of you young folks that are here, and if we had children here especially, they won't get that. But when you get nearly to your 55th birthday, you begin to think about those things. And when you get beyond that, you even get to thinking about it even more. See, I've got a lot of things I want to get done in life. I've got a lot of goals still in my life that I want to get done, and my time is running out. <laughs> now, you say, well, you're just 55. Yeah, but 55 is close to 65, and 65 is close to 75, and 75 is close to 85, and 85 is close to 95 if you make it that far. <laughs> I had an aunt that lived to be 105. <laughs> maybe I'll make it that long, maybe not. But I guarantee you one thing, though. 
I don't care if I do make it to 105. If I hadn't got my goals completed before then, I'm probably not going to get them completed. <laughs> you see, even that 100-year span, if you are blessed like Brother Oliver to live nearly to 100 years old, it's just a vapor in the whole expanse of time. Man, I, I don't care if you live to be 110. I think I read that the oldest man that ever lived was 120. I'm talking about in recent times. Was 120, 121 years? Something like that, maybe 122. That sounds like a long time. And it can, I'm sure, seem like a long time if, it, if you're struggling through life, but, but it's just a short span. I'm a big history student. I love history. And I go to reading about the Roman Empire that spanned about a thousand years, actually the Roman Republic, and then it turned into the empire, but it, it lasted about a thousand years. Actually, if you look at some of the remnants of it, it lasted more like two or three thousand years, but it's, be that as it may, uh, you, have, you have all these figures that come into play. Julius Caesar, Pompey the Great, they call Pompey Magnus. He was the great general, and Caesar and Pompey, were, they were the men. They fought each other, and they, they were allies for a while, then they fought each other. Then Julius Caesar's assassinated, and then Augustus arises, the greatest emperor of all. And, but guess what? <laughs> Even the great emperor Augustus only reigned for about 40 years, and then he died, you know, and other men arose that took his place. Is this not the problem of life? Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He sets forth the proposition here that we've got issues in this life. Over in the book of Ecclesiastes, the very first chapter now remember, Ecclesiastes was written by the wisest man who ever lived, a man named Solomon. And we're told that Ecclesiastes was written towards the end of his life, and it's clear from the writing within the book that it was after he had lived many years and experienced many things. Just as an aside, if you want to see what he was like as a young man, read the Song of Solomon. And, and notice the difference in the tenor of those writings. The Song of Solomon is this exciting, hopeful love story. He, he's young, he's, he's in love, and he's, he's demonstrating through that love the love that Christ has for the church. But in Ecclesiastes, this is after we're told, I believe it's in 1 Kings, I forget the chapter, but we're told that King Solomon loved many strange women, and they turned his heart away from God. As his, as his life progressed, this wisest man that ever lived allowed these strange women, and strange didn't mean they're weird, it just meant they're from foreign countries and foreign religions, and they, you know, the, the daughter of Pharaoh, and he allowed them to set up altars to their gods in, the, in, in and around the temple there, and, and, and they began to pull him away. And, and by the end of his life, here in Ecclesiastes, we see the way he feels about things. Now, this, don't get me wrong, both of those were inspired of God. But it's clear God allows some of the feelings of the writers to come through. The writers of the Bible weren't just uh, typewriters. <laughs> you know, they were certainly the pen that God used, but God also used their emotions. He allowed them to come through. There were times when, when David cries out in sorrow. Sometimes he cries out in shame. Sometimes he cries out in joy. But it's all inspired of God. Here in Ecclesiastes, we see despair. You know why? Because 
The theme of Ecclesiastes is under the sun. Solomon has looked around, and under the inspiration of God, he has written about all we can expect while we live here in this life if all we have is a perspective of what's under the sun and no perspective of what God has for us. In the 12th chapter, he brings us full circle, and he tells us what is really important. But, but notice how he starts out in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, and think about what Job has just said. The words of the preacher, chapter 1 and verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word vanity doesn't just mean pride, it means emptiness. He means it's empty. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it one, two, three, four, five times in that one verse. You think Solomon has a bad view of what's under the sun? <laughs> you think he has a dim view of earth and the sin-cursed world that we live in? He has as dim a view as I do. <laughs> vanity of vanities. I don't know about you, but there are times, especially when I get away from the Word of God, where I get down and out. I wonder sometimes as I get older if it's just an aging process that I tend to wake up just sometimes feeling bad. Mentally, physically, emotionally. I know physically is the reason, but, uh, but I, emotionally and, and mentally I just wake up and I'm just like, another day i got to deal with. Most of the time it's because I've gotten away from reading the Word of God. But there's some truth to that because I'll tell you, my life's not getting easier and easier. Things just aren't always working out. I mean, the stuff I have doesn't work right half the time. I've told you some of those stories. I got the, I got the power saw out the other day, and it's a Husky Varna power saw. It's been a great one. And all the only way I could keep it running, Brother Glennon, was to wide open. I had to keep it wide. If I ever let off, it'd die. And then I'd have to jerk on it and jerk on it and jerk on it again. And, you know, I didn't, do, I didn't deal with that too well because <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't in the Word that day. But I'll say this that really and truly, that's all we can expect out of life. That's what Solomon's saying here. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, saith the preacher. I mean, look at what he says. What profit hath the man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? You work all your life. You hoard it up. You put it in savings. You get your retirement account all ready. And I know how many people do we know that have reached that retirement age and retired and died before they could enjoy anything they'd saved most of their life. He says, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. He said, this old sin-cursed world is still here. All of, all of the stuff that you get, all the barns you build, you know, I, I like to drive, when I'm driving places, I like to look at, and see when I see these old buildings, old houses that are abandoned now. I, I forget where I was now, but I was going through a rural part of Alabama down in South Alabama, and I drove through there, and there was this big, huge uh, mill, it looked like. You know, it had, I mean, it was like a big barn, and it had a silo out there, and it was just falling in. And I was thinking to myself, now somebody built that and used that. That wasn't built just as a, eyesore or something to just look at somebody used that worked hard in that and now look at where it is I mean I look around on our farm and see old buildings that aren't kept up anymore aren't aren't needed anymore you know and we see I remember buildings that used to be there that are gone now you see all that somebody worked for somebody built 
And now the only thing left is the earth. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. He goes on to talk about all of the continual war, the continual battle, just the continual struggle of life. You ever, you ever watch any of those? Uh, I like to watch some of those National Geographic Channel stories about the world. And, and you know, I, I, I saw one here a while back about, um, I believe it was an albatross. It was some birds in the Arctic that they would lay their eggs in a little mud nest that was built up about six or eight inches off the ground. And they're pretty big birds. And then this one little bird would hatch out. It would be the only chick they'd have in two years. And, and when the, they, they built these nests on the side of a cliff, and so the mom and daddy would go out to sea and they'd get fish and come back and feed them. Now, <laughs> of course, some of, the, some of the chicks would be killed by some of the other birds or some other predator. But if that wasn't bad enough, um, the winds came big storm came at one point and blew some of the chicks off of the nest. And the birds apparently were, I'd say they were dumb, but whatever you'd call it, I, their brains were not wired in a way to recognize their baby chick unless it was sitting on the nest. So there was a, a couple of nests that showed where the parents were sitting up on the nest, they're standing on the nest, and the little chick's laying right down there beside it, you know, crying out. Parents just looking around, you know, doing nothing. The little chick had to climb up on the nest by itself and, and get himself back up there. And, of course, you know, that particular one did. I still think there was a cameraman somewhere over there just, you know, <laughs> off camera helping him up on there. But, but be that as it may. Uh, but I thought about that in the sense of the struggle of life. I mean, there, everything we do is a struggle. There's nothing easy out there. There's no animal that's born into this world that's, that just says, okay, everything's rosy. Everything's peachy keen. Here's a, you know, that wouldn't make much of a story, would it? Yo, here's an animal that from the time he's born to the time he dies, everything's great. <laughs> it's always some kind of struggle. That's the way it is with us. Skipping over just for lack of time to the second chapter there. In verse 11, listen to this. He said, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought. He was looking around him at the vanity of the world, and then he said, I want to make it personal here. I looked at all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Pretty much what I've read to you from Solomon is a restatement of what Job is saying here in chapter 14. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. And I want to say to you, child of God, if all your eyes see, or let me say it this way, if all your hope rests upon is what your eyes see, then you're going to feel just like Job or like Solomon. You're going to say, man, it's just not worth it. I believe that's why some people get to the point of taking their own lives, because their vision is strictly on what they see around them. Now, it gets even worse if we continue reading here in verse 3 of chapter 14 of Job. He said, after he says, here's the condition we're in, he said, Dost thou open thine eyes upon such a one and bringest me into judgment with thee? I, I don't know if he's talking, I believe he's talking to God there, but uh, 
but he may be talking to his friends. So whatever it be, he get, that brings us to the fourth verse, which is a very powerful theological principle that clearly Job understood, at least to some extent. Notice what he says. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one? See, I told you there's some good questions and points that are made in this chapter, right? He starts off saying, man, that's born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. All is vanity that I see around me. And who can make a difference? Who can make it better? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? And the answer is not one. Now, certainly that means that we inherit some of the physical characteristics of our parents, but I believe Job here is referring to a deeper theological principle here, which we find all the way back in the third chapter of Genesis and forward throughout the scripture, which is that we are cursed by the sin of Adam. When Adam fell, we fell. And therefore, as David says in Psalm 51 and verse 5, I was, behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know what that really means? That just means, it doesn't mean that the act of conception was some kind of sinful act because the parents were married, but, but he's saying that, that we inherit that sin nature of our parent. And who can make that change? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? He says, not one. In Romans chapter 3, Paul begins to restate this principle as he compares the Jews to the Gentiles. He says in verse 9, what then are we better than they? You know, some people would say, well, I'm just better because I was born a Jew or I was born an American. (laughs) Uh, You know, some people would say, We're better because we were born of a certain race or we were born of a certain creed or born of a certain religion. Some religions say we're better than others. But Paul says in answer to this question, no and no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. And then here he goes forward to set forth the same principle. He might as well have said, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Skipping down for lack of time to the 23rd verse. He sums it all up by saying, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul is writing in the first century A.D. Job is writing are speaking in the very first book of the Bible. The very first book. He, has, he, is, he doesn't have the benefit of all the rest of the books of the Old Testament even. He certainly doesn't have the benefit of Paul's writings. But yet, Job knows this from the beginning. You know, I just want to say to you, if you've been born of the Spirit, it doesn't take a theologian to understand what a sinner you are. You know, there's a part of every born-again child of God that understands these truths. They may not know how to vocalize them. They may not know the depth of them. They may not understand, but there's not one person who's been born of the Spirit that can march up in the Spirit and say, well, God, here I am. (laughs) I'm doing good, and it's about time you recognize this. 
There are people that do that that aren't born of the Spirit. And our flesh still wants to do that. And that's why you see a lot of people out in the religion, religions of the world that are, that are led astray by thinking they had something to do with their salvation. But ultimately, there, there's a part of every born-again child of God that gets what Job and Paul are saying. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? In other words, this is, we've had people come to, the, to our church and, uh, and churches of the primitive Baptists that preached the depravity of man. And they come here in relief because they've been told elsewhere that they must do something in order to be saved. I always pick on Brother Luke Hagler, but just because he has such a testimony there, such a, uh, a great story about that, how that he, he one time did what the preacher said to do, which was come down the aisle and accept Jesus into his heart and pray that sinner's prayer. But then every time the doors of the church were opened after that, he, he did it again silently in the pew because he never was satisfied with what he did. He said, Lord, if I didn't do it right the first time, if I wasn't sincere enough last week, I'm going to do it again this week. And he struggled with that. You know why? Because his heart, in his heart of hearts, in that spiritual part of him, he knew that he was a sinner and anything he touched would be tainted with sin. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? He goes on to say here, seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee that thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as an hireling his day. Now, I want to stop right there just for a second. And I want to point out that, uh, that this, these verses here, verses 5 and 6, are not absoluter verses. <laughs> you know, we understand that the scripture, let me, let me say it this way. God knows when you're going to die. There's no doubt about that. God knows in his mind. He knows when your day of death is coming. He knows how it will happen. He knows what will occur. But we're not God. Okay. I've heard many people say that, you know, there's a determined day. There is no way you'll go past it. No. But, you know, I read in the scriptures about shortening your life. I, I read in the scriptures about obeying your parents that your days be not shortened, that you would live long in the land, you know. So if I was an absoluter and if this means that, well, there's just a certain second that I can count on that I'm going to die, I might as well go out here at the intersection of 49 and 159 and lay down to sleep tonight. And just see, I heard the story one time about the old preacher that had a friend who was an airplane pilot, small airplane pilot. And he wanted to fly with him, wanted him to go up in the airplane with him. And uh, he, uh, he never would go with him. And finally he said uh, to that preacher, he said, Now, brother so-and-so, don't you believe that when your time's coming, you're going? He said, absolutely I believe that. He said, but the problem is, I'm afraid we're going to get up in the air and your time will come. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, the person who believes in absolute predestination and, and even that believes that there's a time coming and it's not, it's set in stone and there's no way you're going to miss it, it's, it's set by God, really doesn't believe that. Because if you did, why would you stop at a stop, a stop sign? If you did, why would you drive on the right side of the highway instead of the left side? <laughs> We understand God, God knows, yes, 
God knows when you're going to die. You don't. And that's not what this verse is teaching us, by the way. This verse is speaking of the fact that man is finite. The word determined there literally means to cut into. He is cut. He is cut into. Seeing his days are determined. They are cut. In other words, uh, the fact is man does not live forever. And it says, uh, thou hast appointed his bounds. The word appoint there uh, means to... uh, uh, to prescribe, and I believe it, it's a reference, uh, a similar reference is found over in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, where he says, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Notice it didn't say it's appointed unto a man. <laughs> it's appointed to men. Guess what? We're going to die. We're going to die. It's appointed to us. We're going to die. Now, can I hasten that day? Absolutely, from my standpoint, by being stupid. <laughs> As I said before, it's one of my favorite sayings that I ever got off the Internet. I hung it up in my office when I was district attorney, and it's, it's, it's sitting on the shelf in my office now as a judge. It says, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is you're stupid and made a bad decision. <laughs> and that's the truth, is it not? <laughs> so notice what he's saying here. He's refer- referring us again to the fact that man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of troubles. He says in verse 7, There is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, that the tender branch thereof will not cease, though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stalk thereof die in the ground. Yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. In other words, there's plants out there that you can cut down. You can, you can cut that tree down out, out there, and before long you may see a sprout coming up through the stump. Verse 10, now here's... The other question, another question. But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost. And where is he? He's asked the question already, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? We're going we're to come back to that in a minute. Now he says, where is man when he dies? What happens to man when he dies? I'm sure Job had thought about these things before. But I can vouch to you from experience that you never think about death and the aftermath as much as when you've been facing it, either with yourself or someone close to you. You don't think about it like you as much as you do when it's really there before you. It's really there before Job. His wife has already encouraged him to commit suicide by, calling, by cursing God. <laughs> said, just curse God and let God kill you. Curse God and die. He's thinking about these things. And see, Job here has a fundamental sense that there is more to life than what we see. And isn't that the question of the ages? Later on, he'll ask the question, if a man die, shall he live again? If a man die, we're about to get to that, shall he live again? Isn't that the question everyone asks? The atheist says no. The the agnostic says maybe. Praise God, the Christian says yes. And Job believes that too. Look as we continue to read here. As the waters fail from the sea and the flood decayeth and drieth up, so man lieth down and riseth not, till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. Now, I think he's beginning to tread into some theological ground here, brother buddy, some eschatological ground, the end times ground. And we're going to see that his hope is what our hope is, the resurrection. He's saying here already, The first book of the Bible, the the oldest book that we have, that there's going to be a time 
when the heavens will be no more and those bodies will sleep in the ground until that time. Now notice verse 13. Oh, that thou wouldest hide me in the grave, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be passed, that thou wouldest appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? Here's the question of the ages. He set forth the problem. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He, he talks about the fact that, that he's an unclean person. Uh, we, we, we read about in Isaiah that the uh, righteousnesses, all the righteousnesses of man are as filthy rags. And here he says something, what, what happens when we die? He says, if a man die, shall he live again? And the oldest book of the Bible, the oldest writer of the scripture says, all the days of my my appointed time will I wait until my change come. Thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. Notice what he's saying here. That word appointed time, by the way, is a military term. That's a, that has to do with a man who is in military service. The idea is that I've been drafted and my hitch with the military will be up someday. Uh, I, I, am, I am laboring here now. All the days of my appointed time, the time of my appointment here on this earth, will I wait until my change come. And that word change literally means the idea of replacing or exchanging it was used of soldiers swapping uh, out as guards, for example, standing guard duty. And notice he's saying here, I'm going to wait till my time to give up this fight, till my time to, to, to turn it over to somebody else comes. He's really, I believe, longing for that time. I know Brother Oliver, I've used him lately as quite a, quite a bit, uh, but I've been thinking about him a lot lately. Old Brother Oliver was 98 years old, and you know, I don't think he regretted one bit the time when he came to die. He was ready to go. <laughs> he was ready to lay down the warfare of this life. He had a long and fruitful life, and up until his last year or so, he was in great shape and great health, but he still struggled even then. He still was tired. He, he couldn't do what he used to do. He missed his dear wife. He missed his son. He had all these struggles and these labors and eventually he got really down with his body and he was ready to give it up i'll tell you beloved there'll be a time if the lord doesn't uh, is, is gracious to me where i can just go to sleep and, and one night and not wake up the next morning that'd be great but i suspect it's going to be a long slow process like it is with most people that dying process there'll be a point where my body is a burden to me and oh how long for this time when he will call and i'll answer him He'll have a desire to the work of my hands. My change will come. Verse 16. You remember what he said? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? He said, for now thou numberest my steps. Dost not thou watch over my sin? My transgression is sealed up in a bag. And thou sowest up mine iniquity. Now Job didn't understand all the details of eternal salvation, I believe. He didn't understand, for example, that we know of, that there was going to be a babe born in Bethlehem of Judah, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would uh, be God incarnate. I don't think Job was privy to all those details. But I want you to see what this born-again child of God had the hope of already, even without the knowledge. He said, somehow, some way, my transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up mine iniquity. God, I trust you to deal with my sin. 
because I'm an unclean thing. I, I can't do it myself. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. I'm not able to do that. Now, Job had some pride problems. Job had some issues that we're going to see as we keep going. He had to, I believe that's one of the reasons God suffered these things to come upon him. It was to help purge him of that. And, and, and I believe by the end of this, this book, you're going to see Job is not the prideful, self-righteous man that he might have been. He never was as bad as his friends. But I still believe here that old Job had a hope that's the hope of every child of God the hope that blooms in the breast of that dead alien sinner when the Holy Spirit quickens them and makes them alive. The hope that was born in the breast of that, that thief on the cross that was justly dying for his sins, for his transgressions, who, who, who would very justly have been cast into hell that very day, just like the one on the other side. I don't, you know, I, I never have been able to say he was or wasn't a child of God. Uh, he doesn't appear to have been a child of God. I'll put it that way. There seemed to be no fruits of the Spirit in that other thief. But oh, that one thief, that thief that looked to the Lord and he looked to him in faith. He already had faith when he cried out to him or he wouldn't have cried out to him. He made one of the greatest statements of faith that's ever been made. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He didn't look like a Lord. His visage was so marred more than any man. He was so beaten and so tortured that the Lord Jesus Christ looked like nothing, nothing like a Lord, nothing like a king. And yet that thief on the cross who knew he was a sinner, who knew he had all these transgressions like Job here. He knew that there had to be something there. He found, he realized that something had to happen to him in order for him to be saved eternally. And that's what had already happened to him. He'd been born again. <laughs> My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up mine iniquity. And he goes on to talk about some things here. Basically, from this point forward, he's bemoaning his earthly life. I believe it's a reference to God, maybe, maybe to his friends, but it doesn't really matter. He said, surely the mountain falleth, falling cometh to naught. The rock is removed out of his place. The waters wear the stones and washeth away the things that grow out of the dust of the earth. Thou destroyest the hope of man. Thou prevailest forever against him and he passeth. Thou changest his countenance, sendest him away. His sons come to honor and he knoweth it not. They are brought low, but he perceiveth it not of them. But his flesh on him shall have pain and his soul within him shall mourn. Pretty much summing up his life there. His flesh upon him shall have pain. His soul within him shall mourn. See... <laughs> What I take from this, as we bring this to a close, is the encouragement that Job and I are a lot alike. That I, I, I've got a lot of similarities to Job. Because see, Job had great faith. He knew there was something he could hope in, but yet he still struggled with a daily grind. He still was in pain, he still was hurting. And even in the face of all of this faith, he bemoaned his earthly life. And he even appears to be maybe blaming God for it, which God will set right eventually. But with all his troubles, Job clings to the only hope that is real in his life, the resurrection. But you know, that's the greatest hope. That's the hope that is both steadfast and sure and that passeth within the veil. The hope that is an anchor of the soul. Over in the 19th chapter, and we won't go there tonight, but in the 19th chapter, he sets it forth even, even greater. He says, 
Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were graven in stone and the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, that he will stand in the latter days upon the earth. Let's, in bringing this to a close, look with me over to the book of James in the fifth chapter. You see, our hope ought to be Job's hope, and it ought to sustain us and keep us in the troubles of life. Notice in James chapter 5 and verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. And he's speaking this in the midst of talking about the troubles of life. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. See, there's the hope of the resurrection. Grudge not one, another, one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. He's ready to come back. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Now listen to this. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. I said this when we began this series. If we take away anything about God from the book of Job other than that he is very pitiful and of tender mercies, then we've missed the point. Our hope is Job's hope, and that hope ought to sustain us and keep us throughout the struggles of life. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.